This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. And a very happy Monday afternoon to you. Five past 12 here on the Country Hour. Lovely to be catching up with you this Monday and in the next hour between now and the news at one o'clock. You know how there's so many catch-ups at the moment and you've probably got a few things in the calendar coming up between now and Christmas. It's the end of year wind-up, it's catch-up with friends and family and often that sort of end-of-year drinks. And one of the really popular drinks at the moment, well, it's always been popular, but this is a new way of sort of um, marketing it, is wine in a can. Have you seen much of that round lately? Because this is an emerging market really starting to take off at the moment. So more about that wine in the can market a little later in the country hour after news headlines at half past 12. And also some more analysis around this Australia-China relationship if you can call it that at the moment, the trade relationship anyway, you know that China's sanctioned 13 Australian industries. Eight of those are agricultural commodities. And there's a new paper out from a university specialist in this sort of China area. And he's saying this is a tactic that's well known in China and it's called killing the chicken to scare the monkey. So putting that phrase under the spotlight very shortly here in the country hour and really how Australia should handle the situation from this point going on. Hope you can stick around for that shortly here on the country hour. Seven past 12 and the grain harvest. It is really humming around Western Australia right now with this morning's figures showing the state's main grain handler, the CBH Group, has just over 11 million tonnes of grain in the bin. So for the state, I suppose we're sort of sitting at around the 12 million tonne mark all up, but for CBH, it's around that 11 million tonne mark. Ben McNamara is CBH's Chief Operations Officer. He is here on the Country Hour Live for you today. He's actually in the Esperance studio, um, but he's here to take a, a question or a, a call, a comment about the season and the harvest and your deliveries, if you've got one, the text 0448 922 604. Uh, be quick, he's around for the next sort of uh, five, six minutes or so. So if you've got something, shoot it through right now, 0448 922 Ben, that figure of 11 million tonnes, I got that a little earlier today from CBH. What are the latest figures showing you? Well, hi, Belinda, and uh, great to be joining you from down here in Esperance. Yes, yeah, so uh, where we're sitting at the moment is about uh, 11.5 million tonnes, um, which is a fantastic effort uh, at this stage of the year. Yeah, I mean, you know, earlier on in the season, did you think we'd sort of be talking about this sort of figure? Because it has been a little bit uncertain at certain times through the season. No, that's spot on. So, listen, it's uh, it's bounced around a fair bit. Um, I think in terms of where we're estimating, it's sort of around that 14 million tonne mark. Um, but even even as I sit here today, there's probably question marks on that. So certainly 13.5 million uh, received into the bin is sort of what we're expecting uh, and possibly close to 14, which is in line with those uh, five-year averages. So really a lot better than you might have thought even going back a couple of months or so. 
Certainly. So I think um, most growers would be uh, surprised on the upside around their yields, probably around the 20% mark. Certainly there's been some volatility between areas and, and I've also heard growers saying that they've had uh, you know one of their poorer years on, uh, on records. But Having said that, um, you know, 14 million tonnes in a year where we've had uh, fairly modest rain during the growing season um, has been great. And that's been offset, I think, by mild uh, winter temperatures, probably limited amount of frost out there and a pretty kind finish. Um, whilst there was no rain in the back end of the year, there certainly was uh, no hot dry winds or hot temperatures uh, to cut the season off. Ben, just after half past 12 here on the Country Hour today, sort of putting the spotlight and looking back at no-till farming and the impact that's had on, you know, what you can get out of the crops and the soil here in Western Australia. And, you know, just by leaving it alone, you can sort of uh, keep that nutrients in there a little bit better and you can get some remarkable crops off it. But as you're saying too, it's also about... How great WA farmers are becoming at just making the most of, you know, in some cases this season, very little rainfall through that growing period. Are you surprised at what you're seeing come off considering the rainfall this season? Yeah, I think uh, think we are. Um, As you said, we have some of the best farmers in the world. Um, their ability to convert uh, limited rainfall into into yield is uh, unsurpassed anywhere around the world and they're incredibly innovative as well. From a a CBH perspective, obviously, um, trying to understand the crop size and where that could go is really important, particularly when we start thinking about investment in our network. So, you know, I think growers have done uh, some amazing things for many, many years. But, you know, recently we've heard a lot about deep ripping, precision farming. I mean, obviously, the, the seed varieties that are coming through are really assisting with uh, with yield potential and then uh, crop mix um, and as you mentioned also um, preserving that moisture through uh, through different farming techniques has uh, certainly been front of mind for all growers. And there's also been a few records broken this season too, kicking off with the, the daily grain receival record. What is the new record? So on the 23rd of November, we received 528,000 tonnes, which is a massive effort. Um, and that exceeded the previous uh, record on the 3rd of December 2018, which is when we received that 16.4 million tonne crop. Um, what, what is fantastic about that is we've also received that into 112 sites versus the 134 sites two years ago. Um, and I think also what we, we take away from that is really the growers' ability to get the, uh, the crop off quickly. So they've invested in, in um, more harvesting capacity and, and certainly we're seeing bigger trucks coming through our sites as well. All right. So you're in the Esperance zone this afternoon. Maybe if we kick off just taking a look around the zones in your Esperance uh, port zone. Have you been around checking out the farms or you've just been there at the port this morning, Ben? Got in this morning, uh, joining you here at lunchtime and then looking forward to spending some time out uh, at uh, particularly at Chadwick, which is one of our very large sites, been receiving around about 35,000 tonnes per day over the last, uh, certainly over the last sort of week or 10 days. Um, but uh, yeah, down here, harvesters progressing really well, sort of 80 or 90% through. Um, growers are either sort of um, finished or will be wrapping up their programs sort of in the next week or so. Um, we're seeing a bit of wheat, uh, mostly wheat come in. There's probably a little bit of uh, barley and, and a fraction of canola to come in.
All right, then. Let's go through the zones then. Where do you want to head next? Well, let's start at the top. Um, Geraldton, uh, as you'd expect, uh, probably 90% complete. Um, again, most growers have, compl- have finished or, or will finish their programs in the in the coming days um, and mostly wheat there as well. But uh, so far, we've got about 2.3 million tonnes there. If we work our way down the state, Quinana North, um, uh, which is north of uh, the Great Eastern Highway and, and in the eastern parts as well, they're 80% heading quickly towards 90% complete. We've got about 2.8 million tonnes uh, in the bin, um, mostly wheat and a little bit of barley to come. Um, and in that zone, we've been consistently receiving in excess of 100,000 tonnes per day. So um, some pretty remarkable efforts out there. Quinana South, um, it's a bit of a story of two halves. The uh, the growers in the, the sort of northern part, so close to the Great Northern Highway, Great Eastern Highway, are pretty much uh, completed. And the southern growers in that zone delivering into sites like Narakon um, still have a fair way to go. Um, in that zone, having received about 2 million tonnes, about two-thirds of the way through. And probably the other zone that I haven't mentioned is Albany, um, over halfway now. Um, like the rest of the state, has had a uh, number of weather interruptions um, but uh, and certainly not getting those harvesting conditions that we saw last year. They've had some big days over the last, uh, certainly the back end of last week, where they received over 100,000 tonnes per day. Um, but most commodities still coming in there, largely wheat with a little bit of uh, barley coming in as well. 14 past 12, ABC WA, this is the Country Hour. Ben McNamara is here. He's Operations Manager for the CBH Group. And this just through from Chad. Ben, Chad. Ben, he says, can you ask Ben why growers don't get paid for the grades they deliver? Sick of dropping lower grade loads on premium stacks. Who makes this margin, the marketers or CBH? I think we're always trying to maximise value back for growers um, and, uh, you know, the team works incredibly hard to, to maximise that value. So um, happy to talk. It's quite a long and detailed discussion we could have on that one, that's for sure. ABC Radio, bushfire information. Hello, I'm Dominique Bayans, breaking into your local program this morning to bring you another bushfire update. A bushfire watch and act is in place for people in an area bounded by Caves Road to the east, Wired Up Road to the north and Quinnan Up Road to the south near Yallingup in the city of Basselton. The alert level for this fire has been upgraded as a wind change is imminent. There is a possible threat to lives and homes as a fire is burning in the area and the conditions are changing. The fire started near the intersection of Tilly Road and Quinnanup Road in Yallingup. If you are not prepared or you plan to leave, leave now if the way is clear. If you are well prepared and plan to actively defend your home, make final preparations now. If you plan to stay and actively defend, do not rely on Maine's water pressure as it may be affected. At all times, close all doors and windows and turn off evaporative air conditioners. If you are not at home, do not try to return as conditions in the area could be very dangerous. There is also a bushfire advice in place for people in the vicinity of Lewin Naturalist National Park in Yallingup in the city of Bustleton. The bushfire is moving in a southeasterly direction. It is uncontained and uncontrolled. 
Firefighters are expecting the wind to change from southeasterly to southwesterly. Some roads may be closed and road information may also be available from Main Roads WA by calling 138 138. And to keep up to date with the latest information, you can visit www.emergency.wa.gov.au or call DFES on 13 or you can also follow DFES on Twitter. And just to repeat, a bushfire watch and act is in place for people in an area bounded by Caves Road to the east, Wired Up Road to the north and Quinnanup Road to the south near Yallingup in the city of Busselton. The next update, I will bring you another update in half an hour's time unless the situation changes. It's just gone 18 minutes past 12. Back to the country hour now. Finding workers to pick crops a global pandemic and trade sanctions from China, 2020 has officially been a good year for Australian farmers. The latest report by government commodity forecaster Abares says the sector is on the way up, worth almost $65 billion this year. Here's Chief Analyst Jared Greenville. There's been a bit of a bounce back from drought in these, this year's numbers and we've got the gross value of agricultural production going up by 7% compared to what it was last year, reaching $65 billion, which is a, a great result for the sector. At the same time, the value of exports has come back by also about 7%. Are we putting that down strictly to the pandemic? There's a few things going on with that export number. Um, part of the story is that there's less meat being sold as producers start to rebuild herds that we've seen run down over the last few years because of drought and also because of pretty high world prices. The other things that are going on with this bumper grain crop that we're, we're getting for the winter crop, our stocks have been run down, so a bit of that's going back into replenishing those. And we have that impact that COVID's had on, on world prices. So there's world prices aren't as good as they have been in the past. Are we seeing the impact of China's trade sanctions on that export figure yet, or is that more likely to show up in next year's figures? No, it's in there as well. I guess the, the biggest impact we're seeing right at the moment already has been barley. And so we, although we've got a big crop and we'll be exporting more, we're expecting that product to be sold at about a 20% discount on the world price and that's largely the result of us no longer having access to the Chinese market or having to face those tariffs, really, um, and that reshuffling in the in the world market, the grain market, there, the barley market. The other thing that's weighing on exports included in that figure is the wine, recent decision on wine, and we're expecting that to really put a halt to trade with China bottled wine um, over the next little while and it will take producers a bit of time to either find other markets or to decide what they're going to do with that product. And you've actually uh, had a look at Australia's uh, market concentration in China when it comes to agricultural products, and I guess that's been driven largely by the tariffs on barley and wine, but it's actually the wool sector that appears to be most exposed. Yeah, when we look at the different sectors and you know the different options they have with markets that they sell across the world, and how much they sell into China, wool stands out as a sector which is largely exposed to China. And that's really because that's where all the processing and manufacturing is for wool products. What is Abares read on the situation with livestock prices, which have been uh, through the roof, essentially? 
Yeah, so there's growing demand or really high demand, particularly domestically, for restocking. Um, and that's actually held on a little bit longer than, than we had expected back in September when we did our last set of forecasts. So we're expecting them to be, be high but start to tail off as the year goes on or, or was into early next year. World market prices for meat are also starting to come back a little bit because China's starting to get its African swine fever issue more and more under control and the pig herd's starting to rebuild. So that's putting a downward pressure on that growth in protein and meat prices we've seen over the last couple of years. But that might be good a good thing for those people who have noticed the price of red meat in particular getting almost to special occasion only at the, at the supermarket and the butcher shop. Yeah, that's right. For consumers heading down to the local supermarket, it's not so bad news to, to have some of the heat taken out of that market. And we make, make some of those meat prices, red meat prices, more affordable at home as well. And I noticed that this ABARES report today coincides with a confidence survey uh, by one of the agri-lenders, which has actually found that confidence is, I think, at historical highs, at least over the last 20 years or so. I imagine, given what you found in your report, Jared, that you're not surprised by that. Do you think that, you know, there's really ever been a better time to be a farmer? So the long-run fundamentals for the sector are, are really strong. While we have a very variable climate, our producers manage it better than any other producers in the world. Um, we know that, you know, population's growing, demand for our products are growing, both because of, you know, rising incomes and urbanisation and so forth overseas, but but really because we produce good quality, clean, sustainable product. So it is a good time to be an Australian agricultural producer, but that's not to say that the sector doesn't have a few challenges around climate and and the horticulture sector, say, around labour for this year. And trade. Yes, and trade. How could he forget? Jared Greenville, Chief Commodity Analyst at ABEZ with Kath Sullivan, 23 past 12. And uh, speaking of those trade relations, China's sanctioning of 13 Australian industries, eight of which are agricultural commodities, is being described by one Australian-China specialist as a tactic called kill the chicken to scare the monkey. Dr Scott Waldron is a Senior Research Fellow at the School of Agriculture and Food Science at the University of Queensland. His new paper is titled The Logic of China's Economic Coercion on Australian Agriculture. And that's where he goes into some detail to explain this well-known Chinese phrase. The phrase is kill the chicken to scare the monkey. So that's sha ji jing ho, which means that a particular industry or a particular country will be killed, that is, there'll be major costs imposed on it, to scare other industries or other countries. So that's another part of this coercion tactic that is used by China in this case. And in your view, has it been successful? Not within Australia so far. I mean, the barriers that have been imposed on Australian agriculture, but not just agriculture, coal, education, tourism has been caught up up in it, have been substantial. And then that could be expected to, to scare other sectors, other industries, to jump up and down and then to lobby government. And there have been instances of that, of individual companies and groups making representations like that. But in general... And I'm going to say, especially the agricultural sector, has respected 
the distinction between immediate commercial interests and federal foreign policy. So in general, the, the, the Australian system has been resilient to this sort of coercion. With that in mind and that things are, are obviously ongoing, is there an end point to what China's imposing at the moment or is this somewhat of a signal for the future? Well, China is sending these very strong signals and it was a little bit difficult to tell exactly what China wanted. But when it released those list of 14 grievances, that is Australian policy decisions that it didn't like, it was signalling that it wanted change in some, at least some of those policies or perhaps an apology. And because of the resilience in the Australian system at the moment and because of widespread support, public support, bipartisan support within government and in, indeed with international allies, I can't see Australia capitulating on any or all of, all of those measures. So that's not likely in the foreseeable future, in which case you have to ask how China's then going to respond. And as we were talking about before, I don't think this is just a, a small disagreement that, that we're having with China and that we, we can get over it and we'll just move on into the future. These decisions are deeply embedded within China, the wolf warrior diplomacy we were talking about, but especially protectionism in China. China's becoming increasingly protectionist, as we've seen from uh, the dual circulation policy and now into the 14th five-year plan. China wants to secure a range of things in high technology, but also in food and energy security. So that's clear. These sort of forces are deeply embedded and they're not going to go away just by, for example, more refined diplomacy. And Australia has to recognise the, the structural nature uh, of, of these issues. So, and um, so the end game, I think, for China is diversification from Australia. And Australia has to recognise that and strategically, over the long time, diversify from China. Dr Scott Waldron, he's a Senior Research Fellow at the School of Agriculture and Food Science and catching up there with Ali Felton-Taylor. This is The Country Hour on ABC WA, very shortly after the Bureau of Meteorology, telling you more about this trend, sort of a, an emerging market for canned wine. And then off to the Northern Territory, where you will meet this uh, young gun in the Brahmin industry. He's just starting up his own stud. He's 20 years old. Uh, it sounds like he's 40, though. He loves his uh, Brahmin cattle. You'll meet him just before heading off to the markets, uh, the Mouche Cattle Market Wrap with John Testro, just before the news at one. First, though, Ali Colvin in the studio with the latest from the newsroom. Thanks, Belinda. The Premier says people from Victoria and New South Wales will be able to enter the state without needing to quarantine from tomorrow. There had been concern Mark McGowan would change his mind after a New South Wales hotel worker tested positive for coronavirus last week. But Mr McGowan says WA will open up to New South Wales and Victoria as planned. Police have seized $32 million in cash in five weeks as part of an investigation into drug trafficking across WA's border. Authorities have today unveiled the biggest cash seizure in Australian law enforcement history, $13.15 million, which was found in a truck in the goldfields last month. It's believed the haul was destined for New South Wales to be laundered and used to distribute methamphetamine. 
A federal parliamentary inquiry into food pricing and security in remote communities has found better transparency is needed in regard to how remote stores are run, improved supply chains and lower prices. The report says remote stores should be licensed and regularly inspected. Thanks, Belinda. There'll be more news at one. Thank you for that, Ellie. 29 past 12. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Off to the Bureau of Meteorology now and Stephen McInerney with you this afternoon. Stephen, taking a look around the Southwest Land Division, how's it looking this afternoon? Not too bad, actually. Um, so, really, we just well, potentially had a little bit of light shower activity along the south coast last night, but just just a little bit of cloud, really, along that south coast now. Uh, I mean, pretty much the rest of the southwest land division is pretty much sunny. Um, we are expecting temperatures to slowly increase over the next day or so. Uh, there is a trough that is developing near the west coast as we go during today, and certainly tomorrow is, will be probably the peak temperature for the west coast itself um, because it does look like this trough is actually going to drag a bit of moisture down with it so we could see some showers and thunderstorms uh, developing through western parts of the southwest land division as we go towards uh, tomorrow uh, probably not extending into the southwest district but certainly uh, we should see a little bit of activity through the central west uh, central wheat belt into the lower west and even uh, I suppose northwestern parts of the great southern tomorrow uh, then that trough doesn't really push that far inland actually, so we probably will still see showers and thunderstorms through the majority of the southwest land division. Most of it probably will be through central parts, uh, so really extending through, I guess, from like southern parts of the Gascoigne down towards the south coast. Uh, thunderstorms itself, look, it's not going to be, I suppose, widespread, but there is, you know, chance you could see some reasonable falls under a thunderstorm itself. Uh, but in general, I guess if you haven't actually um, seen the thunderstorm, you could see maybe a, a meal or two as that system moves through. And then on Thursday, Friday, look, those thunderstorms will still be continuing near the, I suppose, the uh, southwest land division. So we could see them pushing back towards the west coast uh, during the day. So it does look like areas south of uh, Geraldton uh, all the way towards the south coast and then even extending out towards Esperance, we could see those showers and thunderstorms continuing. Um, during that Thursday period. Before Friday, uh, the trough will start slowly moving inland as we go during the day. So uh, we could see a little bit of uh, residual thunderstorm activity near the west coast, but uh, the majority of the uh, rainfall totals will be back towards, uh, I suppose, central and eastern parts of that southwest land division as we go during the day. And moving into northern and eastern parts now, Stephen, there was a bit of activity, uh, rainfall activity in the Kimberley over the weekend and those figures Richard will read out very shortly when he steps into the studio. More of that on the way this week? Uh, yes, so we do have a couple of tropical lows um, sort of situated off the northwest of the state. So one's a fair way away towards Christmas Island and that will sort of be, I suppose, affecting uh, more of the Pilbara area maybe later on in the week. Uh, but there is another tropical low um, situated off the northwest Kimberley coast. Um, now, it's unlikely to develop into a tropical cyclone, but it is likely to develop and generate a fair bit of rain over the next few days. So we are looking at I guess, as you've seen, um, some pretty heavy falls along that northwest Kimberley coast, um, even you know, so far in the last 12 to 24 hours. Uh, that's only going to intensify really over the next, I suppose, 24, 48, even into the next uh, 72 hours as well. So I guess for today into tomorrow morning, we'll probably see you know, falls of 50 to 100 mils potentially for that northwest Kimberley coast. Um, you could even see isolated falls up to 200 around that um, Cape Levique area, so up in that uh, northern Dampier Peninsula region. 
Similar again for uh, Wednesday, so really for the Western Kimberley and I guess for the adjacent uh, Pilbara and the interior district, you could see those 50 to 100 mils again through that area um, with heavier falls around that Broome, Dampier Peninsula again of up to 200 mils uh, during on that, sorry, on that third Tuesday into Wednesday morning. And then on uh, Wednesday into Thursday, uh, we'll see those uh, falls or heavier falls is sort of extending further south in towards the western parts of the interior as we go during the day. So again, 50 to 100 mils for the western Kimberley, um, eastern Pilbara, and then, as I said, extending into the interior. Um, with those isolated falls up to 150 mils again for the western Pilbara. So, oh, sorry, the western Kimberley. So, yeah, as I said, um, yeah, quite a lot of rain expected over the next 72 hours through that region. And that's even before, I guess, that next system sort of approaches the Pilbara coast. So uh, luckily it does at this stage look like those uh, rainfalls associated with that second system is probably more likely over the Pilbara. Um, but yeah, certainly the northern parts of the state is going to get a bit of a drenching. Certainly sounds like it. Thanks for going through those details. And warnings this afternoon then, Stephen? Uh, look, it's, I suppose, fairly quiet at the moment. We do have a strong wind warning for the West Coast, uh, generally around uh, the Geraldton region. Um, so that's that at the moment. Uh, we've also got a fire weather warning current for the Gascoyne, uh, Exmouth, Gulf Coast, uh, northern parts of the Central West District as well. Um, now, it is quite possible that we will also have a severe weather warning for the heavy rainfall um, being, I suppose, issued later on today into t- tomorrow for the... Um, yeah, for the Kimberley district. Uh, so that's probably going to run for the next few days as well. Yeah, all right. Thank you for those details, Stephen. Appreciate that. 25 to 1. Richard Hudson in the studio now. Richard, it sounds like you'll have your work cut out for you with some of those big falls in the Kimberley and into the Pilbara region this week. But... Um It'll keep you busy. I've done an abbreviated version, so we're bound to get someone call me lazy again. But <laughs> it's not as essential during the wet season for the Kimberley, but uh, that's where the majority of the rainfall is. The biggest falls uh, Anna Plains with 35, Bidjidanga 38, Signet Bay 67, Derby Airport 40, Drysdale River Station 25, Fitzroy Crossing Airport 31. Gibb River 24, Leopold Downs had the same, Lombardina Airport 66, Mount Howe Airstrip 27, Theta 26, West Roebuck 23 and Winjana Gorge 24. So I drew the line at 20 and above. But for the rest of the state, we'll go back to 5 mils or above and there's not many to get through. In the Pilbara, Coolawanya 10, Karajini North 17, Parabadu Airport 6 and Pardue had 30 and then in the Euclid District, Air had eight, and that's it for the whole state. ABC Radio, fire ban information. Yeah, total fire ban is in place today for the Midwest Gascoigne region. So the following districts, Carnarvon, Chapman Valley, Greater Geraldton, Northampton and Shark Bay. So for today, you're not allowed to light, maintain or use a fire in the open air and you can't carry out any activity that could start a fire. So that includes all open fires, so things like for cooking or camping, that's not allowed. Hot work, such as metalwork, grinding, welding, soldering, gas cutting or similar, not allowed either. And if a harvest and vehicle movement ban has not been implemented by your local government, you are able to harvest and move vehicles across paddocks for agricultural purposes. But if you ignore the rules of a total fire ban, you could be fined up to 25 grand or jailed for 12 months or both. And if you're a bit unsure, unclear on total fire bans, you can find more information at the DFES website. So just do a search on DFES 
and then tap in the words total fire ban and you will find the DFIS website and then their website has all the information you need for total fire bans. Richard, thank you for that. This is the Country Hour on ABC WA and it's 23 to 1. Now, with the passage of time, uh, sort of reflecting back, it will probably be that uh, this year, 2020, is not really going to rate much of a mention in terms of grain production here in Western Australia. The harvest is forecast to be a little more than 14 million tonnes, as um, you were discussing with Ben McNamara from CBH earlier in the hour. Not a record by any stretch, but around the 10-year average. But the fact that WA growers are producing such crops is remarkable to someone like Jeff Marshall, a retired grain grower who helped spearhead the no-tillage movement in this state. So as part of the ABC Rural's 75th birthday coverage this month, Jeff looked back at the gains that have been made and the part he played in them. Prior to 1990 in particular, it was so much traditional late May seeding. Now, a lot of farmers are doing a lot of their seeding in April and expecting a rain enough to germinate that crop to start the season rather than waiting for rain. And that's that's one of the biggest changes is this prepared to go early and trust that you've got it right with good techniques, good depth control and in particular trying to retain stubble to be a, fr- a big friend as far as helping to retain moisture. When we get bumper crops uh, like we did a couple of years ago, it was 17, yes. 18 million tonnes or whatever it was, and even when we get sort of so supposedly average crops of 15 million tonnes, how do you feel when you see that? Well, it's really exciting because we're really breaking barriers in agriculture, uh, particularly if you consider on the world stage that Western Australia has some of the poorest, oldest and shallowest soils in the world. And when you put into that equation low rainfall as well and pull off some outstanding kilograms per millimetre production that surpassing all previous records, it is it is just so exciting and it, particularly with you with a view which is gaining momentum and damn well should be that global warming is reality, therefore more irregular rainfall and less of, probably. Just tell me a little bit about what life was like in the earlier days of your cropping career, Jeff. I mean, what could a farmer reasonably expect and what were the risks and how significant were they? Oh, the risk was so much higher because we we were traditionally farming and it, it was an English system really in the main and that was you had to prepare your soil. We, I, we went through the new land period which you had to prepare your soil because it was clearing land and it was rugged. Now, we don't prepare our soil. Deep down, there is a lot of preparation. It's just leave your soil alone and, and it will look after itself a lot on its own when you work it less, cultivate it less. So that's one of the key ingredients of modern farming. You mean you got involved with the no-till movement in that period, in the late 80s, the early 90s, I take it. Why? Correct. What, why did you get involved and what was it that prompted you to, to move away from the old system? 
I think the dust storms of the 80s in particular, and there were a number, a few of those, a number of them, and they were big because they they had soil in Melbourne and in the East Coast coming from the West. Um, yeah, we, we had some really quite dry years and there was a lot of cultivation, and particularly in the really the South Coast, the vulnerable areas where sand, sand blows. And that was classic to for us to be saying, look, we can't continue like this. Again, my quote from earlier about how fragile, how shallow and how poor and old our soils are, we can't change that. You've got to try and hold on to every little bit of that. So to lose any of that, key farmers that really thought about it uh, were getting so um, depressed about that aspect that we weren't controlling our greatest asset. We weren't keeping it. How did the uptake of it evolve? Was it immediate and widespread or was it a slower start than that? I think most people in any business, and but we're talking agriculture here, don't feel the need for massive change until you feel your way into that change. Relatively speaking for the state, it was a slow start, but it gained momentum very quickly over the next few years. A lot of, yeah, we, and one for started. So that was a membership-based thing. This was purely a response to leading leading farmers um, saying something's got to change and we can see the ch- we can see how to change it. We've actually now had a little bit of experience. Let's try and help other farmers join this group. Were the results of no-till farmers materially better than those who continued doing the old system while that was still in place? Oh, clearly, and and we used to be amazed. And uh, a lot of people don't like to let go of what you know, and and that was an issue for a lot of us. By the mid-90s, there was this huge membership. So many people were just gaining confidence, and we, we were interacting. Our whole movement very quickly became... Uh, let's talk with farmers and farmers talking to farmers and farmers visiting farmers. And uh, it was a magic little recipe of, of how to make change happen very quickly. Do you think the productivity gains that have been made would have been possible without no-till cropping? No, clearly not. And that's in the high and the low rainfall, high, medium, low rainfall, no. Retired Hyden grower and founding WA No Tillage Farmers Association member Jeff Marshall talking there to uh, Daniel Mercer, of course. Now, you can read more of this story online. There's a link for you on the ABC Rural Facebook page. Heaps of comments underneath too. So if you would like to add yours, please do. Um, I just put out a couple to share with you today. Glaws says, amazing grain breeding and changing farm practices, all helping to feed the world. This from Jeff, our ag research workers and our progressive, innovative and courageous farmers that will be congratulated. And this from Joseph, the fact that drought is in part caused by clearing land because forests, etc., make rain and retain water is not to be proud of, though. Have your say on the ABC Rural Facebook page or text through anytime you like, 0448 922 604. Just before the news at one today, you are off to Muche for a wrap of the cattle market. Can those incredible cattle prices that you've been hearing over, well, it's a string of weeks now, will they continue today? You will find out shortly.
This is the Country Hour, 16 to 1. Well, it's not the first thing you think of when pouring yourself a wine. But the data is showing that more and more of you are becoming quite comfortable, quite happy, buying wine in a can. Emma Brown is the marketing manager for the Brown Family Wine Group. And she says canned wine, it is a small market. ABC Radio, bushfire information. Hello, I'm Dominique Bayans with you again to bring you another bushfire update today. A bushfire watch and act is in place for people in an area bounded by Caves Road to the east, Wired Up Road to the north and Quinnan Up Road to the south near Yelling Up in the city of Bustleton. The alert level for this fire has been upgraded as a wind change is imminent. There is a possible threat to lives and homes as a fire is burning in the area and the conditions are changing. The fire started near the intersection of Tilly Road and Quinnanup Road in Yallingup. If you are not prepared or you plan to leave, leave now if the way is clear. If you are well prepared and plan to actively defend your home, make final preparations now. If you plan to stay and actively defend, do not rely on mains water pressure as it may be affected. At all times, close all doors and windows and turn off evaporative air conditioners. If you are not at home, do not try to return as conditions in the area could be very dangerous. There is also a bushfire advice in place for people in the vicinity of Lewin Naturalist National Park in Yallingup in the city of Bustleton. The bushfire is moving in a southeasterly direction. It is uncontained and uncontrolled. Firefighters are expecting the wind to change from southeasterly to southwesterly. Some roads may be closed and road information may also be available from Main Roads WA by calling 138 138. To keep up to date with the latest information, you can visit www.emergency.wa.gov.au. Call or you can call 13 DFES 13 or follow DFES on Twitter. Just to repeat, a bushfire watch and act is in place for people in an area bounded by Caves Road to the east, Wired Up Road to the north, and Quinnan Up Road to the south near Yelling Up in the city of Bustleton. I'll bring you another update on the radio in half an hour unless the situation changes. It's 13 minutes to one o'clock. Back to the country hour. The last couple of years in Australia, we're really starting to see some growth of wine in Cannes, primarily driven by sparkling wine. But then now what you're starting to see also is a bit of blurring of categories. So you have wine spritzers, you've got wine seltzers in cans. And so consumers are very much starting to see the format more often and therefore becoming more and more open to it. And Miss Brown says wine in a can also offers new opportunities for the wine industry. So we are seeing a slightly younger demographic that across both Australia and international, we are seeing that canned wine is over-indexing more with men than wine tends to be. So it is an opportunity to bring kind of more gender diversity into the wine category as well. One question that probably comes to mind to consumers that haven't tasted canned wine yet is is there any difference in taste of the wine that is stored in cans 
over bottles. This canned wine should really represent the same taste that you achieve from a 750ml bottled wine. I think definitely wines that are made to drink now are preferential in a can. And so seeing sparkling wines um, such as Prosecco or Moscato coming to life in a can, they should be holding that freshness that you expect from a 750ml bottle. When you are looking at wines that are made to age, they don't tend to preference in a can format. But sommelier Peter Marchant believes there is a bit of a difference in drinking wine wine out of a can or filling it into a glass. For me, drinking out of the can is one thing as opposed to wines being put into cans. Drinking directly out of the can is, is a, I suppose, something that shocks a lot of people. And I suppose there's just a convenience aspect to that. But for time and a place, I know lots of my friends have talked about doing it when they're going camping or they're going hiking and they just want to have a glass at the top or whatever it may be. But I think the concept of wine in a can as a storage vessel for a short term is separate to the idea of drinking wine out of the tin. Does it taste any different to wine that is stored in a bottle? It's, it's interesting because the, the idea of a can vessel being almost hermetically sealed, there's, a, there's some positives there from a wine perspective, but in terms of no oxygen, egress or ingress. But realistically, there is a slightly different flavour when you're drinking out of the tin, more so because of the way that it delivers the wine onto your palate, which is sort of getting really sort of technical and boring. But if you think of it like a wine glass that you get in an RSL or a pub that might have a big thick lip on it, when the wine hits that, it actually bounces over it and lands sort of further back on your tongue, on your palate. And similarly with, with a tin, it's a very similar sort of exercise where it actually lands further back and so you miss out the front of your tongue. So that's something that I think a lot of people don't realise, that it's just literally where it lands in your mouth that has an issue. Well, I've learned something this afternoon about that thick glass. I wondered why I didn't like that. Sommelier Peter Marchant from Market Bistro and Wine Store on the Sunshine Coast finishing that report from Jessica Schremer. Ten to one here on the Country Hour. Just before a wrap of the cattle markets today, you are off to a remote cattle station about 350 kilometres from Alice Springs. And it's here where you're going to meet the Northern Territory's newest Brahmin stud owner. At the helm of it all is 20-year-old William Weir. Jack Price went along to meet this young gun of the cattle industry. So I've always had a passion for Brahmin cattle and always loved them and I've always had potties ever since I've been little and always favoured the Brahmins and given them a little bit more attention and whatnot. So in 2016, for um, school, I had to do a week of work experience as part of school. And for that, I chose to go over to a Brahmin stud in Queensland, um, Raglan Brahmins, and they're an hour south of Rockhampton. So yeah, for work experience, I went over there for a look and brought a couple of heifers um, and a bull over there while I was there, and that sort of started it all. Yeah, you mentioned that you love the Brahmins, and you can see it now. You've got a real affinity for the cattle. What is it about these animals that you like so much? I've just loved them ever since I was little, just everything about them, basically. The way they look, their personalities, their, all their little quirks and whatnot. Yeah, their ears and humps, some people don't like them. I reckon they look cool. And their personality, once you get them quiet, they are, I believe, just the best animal in the world. They um, give you so much love and affection sort of thing. And can you give us a bit of a breakdown of herd numbers? How many bulls and how many females do you have? 
Um, so at the moment, I've got about seven, 60 commercial females over in a paddock. So they've got one bull out with them, and yeah, I breed herd bulls from them. And their females, I've started um, entering into the registration system of the Brahmin breed. So you enter them, and then three generations down the track, they become fully registered females um, and males of the Brahmin breed. And at the moment, I've got about uh, 10, or 10, 10 stud cows, so... They're out in a paddock here close to the house and a number of them have been AI'd. So, yeah, looking to build my stud numbers up too. <laughs> We're in the yards with them now and they're giving us a bit of a push and a bit of a lick. What are you looking for when you are out buying cattle for the stud? Um, so there are a number of things you try and look at. Everyone's got different tastes and preferences, but when I try and buy bulls especially, I try and buy just like a good, nice, rounded animal, like a well-balanced animal so got meat in all the right places and like feet exceptional on their feet because they have to do a lot of walking out here so they can't have long feet or problems in their structure with their legs and that I'm also chasing um pole cattle because I think that's the way the industry is going and that's what I'd like to breed so I'm looking for a nice nice big pole head on them a nice strong head that's something I believe is really important especially in bulls they have to have the big size head about them and so you are sourcing the genetics from far and wide. What are the results that you're starting to see so far, obviously pretty early in the uh, operation? Yeah, so the um, results I'm starting to see have been really successful so far. So this um, mob of wieners we're with now, they're sort of the first progeny off a bull I brought two years ago out of Brahman Week from Lindley Park Brahmins, and I'm really happy with all his progeny. He's producing a really consistent line of um, cattle for me. I've also got a couple of heifers, the token heifers I brought earlier this year. I had them AI'd to an American bull from ECC, England Farms. So I'm really excited about his progeny. They're going to be born in January. And also the cow cow I brought earlier this year off Glen Oaks Brahmins was um, preg-tested in calf to a J.D. Hutchings bull from America. So I've got a two-month-old bull calf here by yeah J.D. Hutchings bull which is a very good stud in America so he's growing really well and yeah I'm really looking forward to seeing how they all turn out. And has it become a commercial operation yet or is it more of a hobby at this point? Um, it is just a hobby at the moment but I'm starting to build my numbers up now and hopefully in the next couple of years I'll be looking to sell some herd bulls either locally or up north or into Queensland somewhere so it's yeah just starting to ramp up now. You did mention the strong prices for bulls before, and do you think you've got a two hundred, three hundred thousand dollar bull in this stud somewhere down the line? Oh, you can only hope, I guess. Um, obviously, the bulls that make that money are just exceptional animals, and they also come from extremely well-known and successful studs. So, if I could even breed a bull worth twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars down the track, I know I'm doing well. So, yeah, one day maybe, but all I can do is hope. Oh, good luck to him. I love to hear that enthusiasm. William Weir from WTW Brahmins in the Northern Territory. Four minutes to one, off to the markets now. And to Mushay first for a wrap of the cattle market. 2,627 cattle penned today. So numbers up about 350 on last week. John Testro's been at the sale, keeping a very close eye on all the prices. John, what were they like today? Good afternoon, Val. It was a mixed quality yarding. Pastoral young cattle, these 10 to 15 cents on a poorer selection. Healing heifers to the trade gained 30 cents. Grown steers, 500 to 600 kilos were 6 cents dearer. 
and other fluctuations came in the manufacturing types. There was over a thousand cows penned today, and prime type sees five cents with a medium weight score twos back ten cents. And uh, just within that yarding of the thousand, one vendor yarded two eighty mixed age cows pregnancy tested in calf, and they ranged from light score two to heavy prime and were sold dollars per head to WA graziers from nine hundred and eighty to seventeen forty at rates well above meat value. But uh, going on with the uh, uh, the market. Bull market, medium weights to live exports eased uh, eight cents, but prime bulls gained five. Now, uh, some quotations in the wiener portion of the yarding, local prime wiener steers to feeders, they sold from 370 to 460. Firm corresponding pastoral wiener steers, 330 to 332, they fell 10 cents, quality driven. Local wiener heifers, uh, they sold from 320 to 398, down 30 cents, and the score to pastoral wiener heifers from 100 to 268, down 15 cents. Yielding steers local to the trade sold from 340 to 394 to processors, up 15 cents. The pastoral's uh, defeaters sold at 320 firm. Local yielding uh, heifers to the trade sold from 330 to 364, up 30 cents, the best gain of the day. And the pastoral yielding heifers eased 10 cents on reduced New South Wales demand. They sold from 182 to 320. Grown steers, uh, very good penning of these. Local sold from 324 to 358, up six cents. And grown heifers were local and sold at 272 to 350, also up six cents. In the cow market, medium weight score twos to processors, 180 to 248, down 10 cents. Prime to processors, 238 to 284, five cents easier. But uh, understandable with over 1,000 cows pen. Bulls, including parcels, a light to live export, 250 to 386 firm. Medium weight range, 450 to 600 kilos, down 8 cents at 276 to 350. A lot of these pen today. And prime heavy to processors, they gain 5 cents at 250 to 306. That wraps up the uh, Mouchet sale, Belinda. Thanks for that, John. It's a minute and a half to the news at 1 o'clock. And on Friday, John, the Boyan Up, a store cattle sale, another store cattle sale held at Boyan Up. And I hear more records were set. Yeah, incredible, Belinda. There was 1625 head uh, Average 1,372 for $2.28 million. That's only the second time a $2 million-plus sale has been held at Boyna. But just quickly, 1,000 uh, wieners penned and the wiener steers uh, average 450 up 15 cents. The wiener heifers average 420 up 25. And of the Frisian and Frisian Cross, heavyweights, uh, well, right across the board, they sold uh, 15 to uh, 20 cents dearer, 15 to 30 cents dearer. But a new record was set at 600 cents for Angus Friesen lightweights, and uh, that was quite incredible. But uh, massive sale again, Belinda, and the demand just doesn't ease at all. This cattle market's quite incredible. It certainly But that's all from like me it. for today. I'm John Tesro for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the ABC. Oh, I'm glad you could go through both those sales for us this afternoon, John. Thank you so much for that. Uh, John Testro back here on the Country Hour tomorrow, back at Mouche and going through the yarding and the prices for the sheep market tomorrow. Great to catch up with you today. Just repeating, the state's main grain handler now has 11.5 million tonnes of grain in the bin, so that probably makes it 12.5 for the entire state. One o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.